Hey, this is Pastor Ellie, one of the lead pastors of Bold Church. I wanted to say thank you for joining us today. If you want to stay up to date on everything that's happening at Bold Church, want to live stream a service, or find out when our next gathering is, head over to bold.church. Enjoy the message. Good morning. Who's excited for church? Come on. If we have not met, my name is Ali and my beautiful wife and I, we started Bold Church six years ago with a dream. We wanted to create a place where not only Christians could come, grow in their faith, but unchurched people could explore their faith. If you're new to church, you are VIP here today. And uh, let me just make a very, very important announcement. On the 19th of November, it's going to be a special service for two reasons. Number one, we're going to do something we've never done as a church before. We're not only baptized nine people, but we're going to take communion as a church family during service. I'm going to preach a message, believe it's going to change us. And then right after service, after you take the photos and family, there's going to be a ton of people. We're going to invite everyone who calls this place their home church. We're having a special, what we call Vision Builders Offering Brunch or Tea and Biscuits or something like that. And I want to play this video. Uh, we have been in 11 locations in the past six years. Uh, every year of our church, we have a, a, an annual offering called Vision Builders. Uh, your tithes pay for today, your offering pays for tomorrow. And often the things that we have done as a church has been accelerated because of your generosity. And we say this all the time, we move at the speed of your generosity. So I, I, we just have a vision that this is not the only location. This is, not the, this is the smallest we are going to be as a church. And we are preparing. If you believe it's going to rain, buy an umbrella. And so we are preparing for the future. We're going to cast vision on where we are going and why. Would love to invite you. 15 minutes after service on the 19th, there will be coffee. My wife and I will be casting vision and inviting you to be part of this vision. The average family, sorry, I'm preaching before I'm preaching. The average family in America spends $900 to $1,000 on Christmas. And we've asked this question, what would it look like if we were generous with God? What could he do with our generosity? Now, we're on a collection of talks called Explore God. Uh, uh, I think the video is still playing. There's a QR code if you want to register, just so we can get a head count on food. That's the QR code. It's on the website as well. But we're on a collection of talks called Explore God. Anyone loving this collection of talks? We rebranded it, uh, Attack the Elephant, because uh, there are things between you and God. There are things that are blocking you from having faith. The, uh, normally, uh, sometimes churches avoid difficult subjects. They walk around them, ignore them. We attack them here because we want to help you in your faith. And I don't want to uh, spoil what I'm speaking. I'm, I'm going to pray because what I'm preaching on is crazy, and next week is going to be even crazier Probably the most difficult sermon I've ever preached. I'm inviting everyone who calls our church home to be in the room on the 12th. I'm preaching on Jesus and transgenderism. It's going to be a defining moment for our church. Would love to invite you. We're even having everyone who's a fifth grade and above to be in the room because Disney ain't telling you the truth. Our culture's not telling you the truth. We want to preach what God's word says. So let me pray because I got a crazy message today. Are you ready for God's word? Uh, our tribe has a vibe, right? So let's pray and let's get into God's word. Thank you so much, Jesus. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today? God, we want to know you better. We want to love you more. God, reveal your truth from the scriptures. We want to walk in one way, but we want to walk out another. If you believe that everybody said, come on, everybody said. Can we give Jesus a round of applause real quick? Just kind of warning you, it's, today's a, kind of a heavy message, but we'll get through it. 
You need it. Uh, in 2018, I'm not sure if you know this, but Chick-fil-A was coming to New York City. And I would have been outside with a sign parading, thank God, Jesus chicken is coming. <laughs> but New York was, wasn't having it. And watch this headline in, from New York City, Chick-fil-A creepy infiltration. What's so creepy about fried chicken and, and waffle fries, bro? Clearly, you've never had three times in one day like I've had before. And let me read you an excerpt from this article. It says, the brand's arrival here feels like an infiltration, like they're an army of some sort, in no small part because of its pervasive Christian traditionalism. Its headquarters in Atlanta are adorned with Bible verses and a statue of Jesus washing a disciple's feet. Its stores are closed on Sundays. We can't have that. The restaurant's corporate purpose still begins with the words to glorify God, and the proselytism thrumps below the surface of this, quote, creepy Fulton Street. If you haven't been paying attention, this anti-Christian mentality and pervasive thought has only increased in our culture. Christianity is not viewed as something beneficial anymore. It's viewed as oppressive. It's viewed as, 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 as small-minded, that uneducated people are Christian, that if you believe Christianity, you are controlling and hurting America. So I want to answer this question because it's so big in our culture. Is Christianity oppressive? There are some of you in this room, that is the elephant in the room for you. That's what's preventing you from becoming a Christian. You're, I don't want to be part of that. And for others of you, this is why you're silent with your family and coworkers. Because you don't want to offend people with what, what, is so, what you perceive as offensive or oppressive. And everyone needs to hear this message. And, and the idea is, would America, would, would the world be a better place if Christianity didn't exist? Well, John Lennon in 1971 wrote these words in the song, Imagine. He said, imagine there's no heaven. If it's easy, if you tried, no hell below us, above the sky, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. He, he's essentially saying, yes, the world is a better place if there wasn't Christianity, no religion. And even Martin Castro, who's in politics, he was the head of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, wrote these words. He said, Christians, this is us, by the way are largely discriminatory, intolerant, racist, sexist, homophobic, and Islamophobic. And uh, th this idea that we are somehow, if that, those things are true, then yes, we are damaging to the world. And something happened in 2020 that accelerated this mindset. It was the death of George Marbury, Mar Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And uh, what was peripheral in the college campuses came front and center. The solution to the racism problem was presented by a lot of universities as critical race theory, or what many theorists call intersectionality. Let me explain what this means. It's this idea that there are two classes of people. There are the oppressors and the oppressed. Those with power and those without power. Those with privilege and those without privilege. And the way that you fix the world is that you take those who are exerting power over the weak and you give it to the poor. Let me show you this image on what intersectionality or critical race theory says. It says it, it, there's this line, and everything above the line is oppressive, and everything below the line is oppressed. Let me read you from this list some of the things. If you are below the line, you are a female, a person of color, non-European persons with disabilities, anyone from the LGBT community, the working class, the not so attractive, the old, those who hold a minority religion, just to name a few. And if you are above the line, you are white, male, masculine, 
European in origin, heterosexual, able-bodied, highly illiterate, young, attractive, and upper to middle class. And you can't see it because the text is too small. But if you are Christian, you are considered oppressive. It's the only religion above the line. So let me walk through this example. If you are a straight, able-bodied Christian woman of color, you are three parts oppressive, two parts oppressed. Let me read this to you. So you, your straightness is negative one. Your able-bodied good-lookingness is, is negative two. And because you're a Christian, negative three. But because you are a woman of color, plus two, so you are only mildly negative one. Stacey, I know it's your birthday, but you're only mildly oppressive. <laughs> and just in case, I asked her for permission. So don't get angry. Don't get angry. Let me use myself as an example. I am Persian, and those are Aryans, so I'm white, negative one. I'm Christian, negative two. I'm heterosexual, negative three. And because Persians are extremely good-looking, negative five. So on this scale, I'm like A-plus in oppression. And the, and the idea, I'm trying to make a very difficult subject funny, guys. This is taught on every college campus, every high school, and it's coming to an elementary school near you. That if you are white, straight, and male, you are the problem with the world. And the only way to fix the problem is you take power from those people and you give it to the, the, the poor, the marginalized. And my question is, well, what if you give power to a, a, a woman of color? Won't she become as oppressive as the straight white man? Because the problem in terms of Christianity is not this, my skin color. It's not my, my wealth or, or even like my able bodies. It's sin. Which means the white guy sitting next to me is just as simple as I am. We're both jacked up. And what Christ CRT and intersectionality does not admit or has not yet been played out, many of these theories, they're called theories, not facts. What will happen is if you take the people who are minorities and people of color and you unilaterally put them, they will become just as oppressive as others. And the question before we say this is awful, this is bad, my question for all the Christians before we get angry is why? Why are people embracing this? And I would argue we have a part to play. The question I want to ask us is there have been times, if we're honest this morning, that there have been those who claimed the name of Jesus but acted in extremely unchristlike ways. There have been those who have claimed Jesus had held power, their position, and used their authority to hurt the weak, the marginalized, and taking advantage and oppressed people. And there are three examples of that that are a black eye on Christianity. The first is the Crusades. In the book of Exodus, God gives us the Ten Commandments, which is the basis of human rights. And one of those rules says, thou shall not commit murder. Which often people think any kind of killing is awful. Well, listen, if someone comes into my house and wants to kill me and rape my wife, do I believe in gun control? Yes, I'm going to use my gun to control you. Because the Bible doesn't say don't kill in self-defense. It says don't murder premeditated, which what the Crusades were. We declared war on Islam. It's awful. But we've got to admit the, the, the reality of this. This is a black stain on Christianity. The second thing, which is why sometimes Christianity is viewed as oppressive is slavery. Here in America and in England, these two countries were primarily responsible for the transatlantic slave movement. There have been slaves in human history, 
but often it's what's called indentured servitude, where I said, I want to be your slave. It's basically I'm working for you. You're going to house me and feed me, but it's voluntary. The slave trade that we had in America was involuntary. We went to Africa and kidnapped people. And often the people that did that, unfortunately, this black eye on our country is that they were Christian. I want to show you this picture, which is just crazy to me. This is from a church in 1920. You see the pastor shaking some dude's hand, and look at the choir. This is not like Christmas outfits, by the way. This is the Ku Klux Klan. Come on, can we just be honest? This is not Christianity. This has nothing to do. They are just using Christianity to get what they want. And every time, every time I talk about race, two groups of people get upset with me. I didn't talk about it enough, and I talked about it too much. And I always tell people, I have an A-plus in oppression. Everyone's going to get offended this morning. <laughs> but there's a third category, and that is women. Often, in Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image, and he gave them dominion to rule. So before sin entered the world, God wanted male, male and female to be co-heirs with Christ. And in Joel chapter 2, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And often, Christian men will want women to be silent. How can you be filled with God's spirit and prophesy? Are we doing this in sign language? And yet the very people that should be uplifting the, the women who are made in the image of God, we are the ones silencing them. And it's not just in ministry, it's also in marriage. I wrote like this. Women have often been mistreated, disregarded, and abused and silenced by men who claim to follow Jesus. Women who have been marginalized have been told, you need to stay in this relationship that's physically abusive, verbally abusive, and sexually abusive because, you, woman, you need to submit. I just want to pause for a second and say, I'm sorry. If you've ever been abused or marginalized by Christianity, I'm so sorry we didn't represent them right. And we're like this. We don't have a Jesus problem or a Christianity problem or even a Bible problem. We have a representation problem. And before I point the finger and say, oh, my gosh, yeah, you can clap. What I don't want to do is like, oh, my gosh, those people are like so awful. The reality is I fall short, too. I wrote like this. We all, every person in this room, who is a follower of Jesus, you at some point have preached Jesus with your lips and not your feet. You've claimed him in word, but you didn't live it out. You preached the gospel, but then you didn't live it out. We all, not just those people, we have all at some point misrepresented Jesus. Amen? And the reality is that Jesus, who had all authority, all power, he never used his power and authority to hurt the sick, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed. He never hurt anyone. He, he, I wrote like this. He elevated people. He healed the sick. He set the captives free. He raised the dead to life. He welcomed and loved those who society said were worthless. If I can show you my cards, I wrote like this. The Christian faith, as modeled by Jesus and presented by the word of God, is anything but oppressive. Most people don't realize this, but Moses, when he helped Israelites come out of slavery for 400 years, they did not have the scriptures. Moses had not yet written the Torah. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, says, let us make man in our image, which is crazy. You and I read that, and we, we gloss over it. But if you realize every kingdom at that time, they taught this idea. Only the king 
Only Pharaoh is made in the image of God. You peasants, you women, you that are lame, you're worthless. And then Moses said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here's the truth. It's not your maleness or your femaleness. It's not that you have able-bodied feet or you're in a wheelchair. Everyone is made in the image of God. You have value and worth because God made you. And so there are some lies that are being pervasive and being taught by a culture. And here's the first one, that Christianity is a white man's religion. Come on, this one's crazy. Let me break this down for you. If you look at the scriptures and if you realize that long before, long before Martin Luther King tried to end segregation in America, there was a man, several African Americans in the 1800s, one of them predominantly named Frederick Douglass. He was an abolitionist. He was one of the primary voices trying to end slavery and segregation in America. And this man was being held captive as a slave, listen, by a Christian. And he had every right, every reason to condemn and throw away Christianity. But he recognized there are some real Christians and then there are some Milli Vanilli Christians. There are those that like literally read this word and then those that just use this word as a tool of power and oppression. And he wrote these words. He said, when I have respected what I have said respecting and against religion, I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, and with no possible reference to the Christian proper. For between the Christian of this and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. They spoke differently back then. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be a friend of one is necessity to be the enemy of the other. He is drawing this distinction just because you claim you're a Christian, just because you have a cross on your neck does not mean you are a real follower of Jesus. And what he's pointing out that there are a lot of people that claim Jesus, that preach Jesus, but don't live it. They talk like him, but they don't live like him. And this is most dominantly what he's saying is in, in your view of how you treat people, particularly slaves, and that, that's what he's trying to point out, that, that in our culture, we, we, we don't realize this, but it wasn't Republicans and Democrats that ended slavery in America. It was the Christians. It was their view that all men are created equal. And if you don't believe that, it wasn't just in America, even in England, a man by the name of William Wilberforce. Hundreds of millions of dollars he lost at his own personal expense. Why? Because he had a conviction that everyone, male and female, tall and short, Warrior fans and Laker fans, everyone is made in the image of God. And we can laugh, but the reality is only the worldview of Christianity ended slavery. That's why Stephen Carter said these words. He's a professor at Yale. If you are maligning Christianity, you're not maligning who you think you are. Around the globe, the people most likely to be Christian are people of color. See, the, the caricature that we're shown in the media, the, 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 the narrative that we're shown is often these Norman Rockwell pictures of a white family, look at this picture, praying, because Christianity is a white man's religion. White husband, white wife, white kids, that's Christianity. Western, religion, Western culture has a monopoly on Christianity, and nothing could be further from the truth. You know why America's great Christianity, bro? 
is that Christianity has had a monopoly on the West. And now that Christianity is being pushed to the peripheral, it's becoming less and less great. And this is what when you look at the aggregation of data, who's actually most likely to be a Christian? The average Christian in the world is not male but female. Not white but brown. Not first, third, third world, not first world. Far more Pentecostal than Presbyterian. The average Christian in the world today is a 22-year-old female who is brown. Come on now. This ain't a white man's religion. Which is why I wrote it like this, Christianity is the most diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement in history. It is also the most widespread and decentralized. Most religions, listen, are grown and expand through birth. And they're centralized to one country. Christianity does not grow through birth, although it does. A lot of you are having kids, but it grows primarily through conversion. Every day, when I was part of my previous church, we would get phone calls from people saying they had dreams and visions of God coming to them. A man in a white robe, his name is Jesus. Can you tell me who he is? Because Jesus still saves. Still saves. Let me show you a picture that's going to rock your world. The first one is this. This is the fourth largest religion in the world. This is Buddhism. If you notice, it's primarily found in Asia. Why? Because it only grows through birth. Number three on the list, Hinduism. Where do you see it? That's India, for those of you who go to public school and don't know your geography. I'm trying to have some fun. This is a hard sermon. Number two on the list, Islam. What many sociologists call the 1040 window. Those are the 10 on the equator and 40. 1040 window. Islam primarily spread. As a former Muslim, I can tell you, Muhammad declared war 66 times in his lifetime. Islam spread through the sword. Christianity, though, for the first 300 years, was trying to be stamped out. And the more they would kill Christians, the faster it would spread. And within the first 300 years, one-third of the world, not just the Middle East, one-third of the world became Christian. Just for, for giggles, I want to show you this other one. This is Judaism. If you can't see the white speck in the Middle East and in America, it's because there are just as many Jewish people in America as there are in, in Israel. But I want to show you this picture. This is what Christianity is really about. It is not a white man's religion. It's on every continent, every tribe, every nation. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. And you will be told otherwise. That's why, anyone know who Maury Povich is? Trash TV. Can I, can I read you one of his trash quotes? Christianity is a white man's religion. No, it's not. The most diverse, multi ethnic, multicultural language religion in the world. It's the only one that's decentralized. You can try to stamp it out, and it won't be stamped out. Uh, the, the, the average, there are two and a half billion Christians in the world today. Most of them do not live in America. Most of them live in Asia, Africa, and South America. The, the, the country with the most Christians is actually China. The fastest growing church in the world is in the oppressive Islamic state of Iran. Because even Jesus knows, once you go Persian, there's no better version. He made us good-looking and oppressive, baby. Come on. The second lie that we are told that Christianity is a preference, it's the Bible was written by powerful and privileged men. 
They wrote this to oppress the masses, as, as Sigmund Freud would once say, oh, it's the opioid of the masses. That powerful men got together. Bro, these dudes were uneducated bros. Ten of the twelve first apostles were murdered for their faith. They didn't get mansions for their faith. One of them, they tried to boil alive. He didn't die, so they exiled him to the island of Patmos, and he still wrote another book of the Bible. The, 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 the man that they follow is a man named Jesus who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he spoke about this dynamic, that the world leads this way, but I want you as followers of me to lead different. He says this in Matthew 20. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Lord what? Their authority, their power, and their privilege. That the world says, I'm in charge, I got the title, wash my feet, serve me. And Jesus took off his robe. And the king of the universe bent down and he washed the disciples' feet. Not just teaching them humility, but modeling it for them. Saying, this is how I want you to lead. Let me remind you, Jesus, a brown-skinned man, a Jewish man from the Middle East whose followers, according to Roman culture, were a bunch of low-grade, everyday, ordinary nobodies which included not just men, but women. We'll get that in a moment. You have a bunch of people who have no power to oppress anybody, even if they wanted to. Most of them were put to death because of their faith. They gained nothing. And that was my introduction. Are you ready for God's word? Come on. It's on the screen. This is Galatians chapter 3. And we got to realize that there's a man by the name of Paul. He wrote 11 of the 27 books of the New Testament, almost a third, by the way. And he often would write letters, which are theologians called epistles. These are letters to churches. And he's speaking to specific problems in specific churches. And every church, every church, and the first time, they're all jacked up. So if you're looking for a perfect church, you have not, you're never going to find it. And even if it was perfect, the fact that you walked in, you jacked it up. So he's going to speak to problems. In Galatia, these are the most judgmental. These are the most judgmental, self-righteous, haughty people. They would walk around saying, I'm a man and you're a woman. Mm. I'm circumcised and you're not. Mm. I'm a Warriors fan. You're a Lakers fan. Mm. And look what the Apostle Paul says to correct their negative attitude. So in Christ... You who create categories, you who create divisions, you who create compartments where you try to marginalize and push people away and you push them down because you think you're better because you're male or you're not, you're not a slave. You think you're, you create all these categories. You all, someone say all, all. are children of God. Amen. Through faith, for all of you who are baptized into, in, have clothed, whoa, that's, that's incorrect. Let me read it again. So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. He is eliminating every category that you and I want to create, saying there's one, Christian. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither male, excuse me, or female, for you are all one in Christ. He's destroying their categories. He's saying you are separating each other by class, last name, first name, religion, gender, home, privilege, money. He goes, all of it goes away. All of it. You are a follower of Jesus. Some of you think, well, is God eliminating diversity? He's not. He's celebrating their diversity. 
He's, if God, if I can speak for God, he says, celebrate diversity. Enjoy what makes you different because diversity is beautiful and it was my idea. I'm the one who made you diverse. Stop boxing yourself in, though. Stop riding each other off. Stop pushing each other to the side and lowering and elevating people because you judge them because they dress different, look different, and have a different gender than you. Stop because may they may not have as much money as you or the same last name as you. You are all one in Christ. And you and I will read this and we'll put it on our coffee mug. Back then, it was offensive to them. The people that Paul was written, writing to the most were actually male Jewish men. Can I, don't put it on the screen yet, but I want, to sh- I want to speak to this. The average Jewish man in the first century who would pray this prayer every day out loud, it was a savage prayer, bro. And he'd pray this out loud in church. The average Pharisee would pray this prayer. It's on the screen. God, thank you for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. If I can modernize this, for those that talk about it, thank you for not making me a Lakers fan, a Raiders fan, or a Cowboys fan. Oh my, how awful life would be, God, if, if I had to cheer for losers every day. That's why, if you're curious, in the book, of, the book of Acts, Acts 15, a Gentile, a slave, and a woman get saved. It's as if God is slapping their demonic culture. That's not there by accident, by the way. The order of those three, because he's saying, that's not me. I don't know why you're praying like that. In this culture, he's speaking to Jewish men saying, you think your maleness makes you awesome? You think the fact that you're free and they're slaves? Make, the fact that you walk on two legs and maybe some, someone is deformed? You elevate yourself above them? He's saying you're all equal in value and worth because of the blood of Jesus. And this is why Christianity blew up It exploded, not because of the sword. I wrote like this, Christianity is radically inclusive. It's the only religion that says the poor and the strong can be in the same room. The white and the black, the slave and the free, because in that culture, only the rich would go to one church. Only the free would go to this church. Only men would go. And in one room, all of the, it was countercultural. It had never happened before in human history. That's why it's the fastest growing religion in the world. The only thing oppressive about is Christianity oppressive is the question. But I understand why sometimes it's viewed as oppressive. It's not in who it includes. It's the second part. Christianity is radically exclusive. That the invitation is given to all, but only through one man. That there's only one person by which we are saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the gate. There's no other gate. I'm the resurrection. There's no other resurrection. I'm the light. There's no other light. I'm the bread of life. If you're gluten-free, you're going to be in trouble. I'm the true vine. I'm the light of the world. I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's why in Romans chapter 10, verse 36, says everyone, someone say everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no other name by which we will be saved. And there's this invitation that's given to everyone. It's beautiful, but it's only through one, which makes me Ask the question, is this, is this what makes Christianity sound a bit oppressive? That we claim there is one truth, one standard, 
and that all of us need to bow our knee to it. And people hear this and go, oh my gosh, I hate that. And I, I just ask this question. Is this what makes Christianity impressive? Because I would ask you to consider, isn't this exactly what everyone else in the world is doing right now? That you need to believe what I believe. You need to say what I say. You need to vote for the person I voted for because if you don't, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to cut you out of my life. Imagine if God extended his invitation and the moment you said no, he just squeezed your throat. But God gives you free will. God gives you a choice. He does not cancel culture you. He says, I'm God. I'm the way, the truth, and love. And I want you to choose me. But even if you don't, I'm going to let you choose whatever you want. The question that we need to ask is, is, did Jesus tell the truth? I want to read it like this. He does not force or demand you to accept him. He has given you the free will, the ability to make that decision for yourself, which is the opposite approach of the anti-culture, anti-Christ culture we're living in. Right now, the anti-Christ culture is demanding, demeaning, oppressing. And if you don't submit, you will get punished. And here we have this brown, marginalized carpenter who is not a politician, a general, or a world leader, and he flipped the world upside down. And when you realize who came to Jesus was not kings and rulers, it was the poor. It was the marginalized. It was the weak. They say before Jesus came, because they didn't have monograms, they said there are a hundred million little children that when they were born, parents would see that they were handicapped or female, and they'd leave them in the field. And then Jesus showed up. He says, no, no, that's made in my image. And the very people that came to Jesus were the weakest, the poorest, and the most oppressed. The handicapped that no one wanted to look at. The woman that everyone thought was just awful, which is crazy to me. When you read the scriptures, the lowest people in society were Gentiles. Below them, a Gentile woman. And the longest conversation that Jesus has is with a Samaritan woman who culture wouldn't even look in the eye, and he has the longest conversation with. He says, the world says you're worthless, but I say you're valuable. Luke Perry, a non-Christian, by the way, wrote these words. He says, it is quite clear that this Christian revelation of the human person, the philosophy of a human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. I wonder if this has something to do with the fact that it's a whole lot easier for a person who's poor to recognize their need because they are poor in spirit. And is the question, is Christianity oppressive? I want to ask this question before I answer that. When's the last time you drove past an atheist-funded, atheist-founded hospital, medical clinic, or adoption center? Never. Because only the Christian worldview fights for the rights of the poor, the lost. Human rights in our world would never exist if God didn't give us this. Rebecca McLaughlin, in what is one of the five best books I've read this last year, called the Secular Creed, says this, every human being possessed equal dignity was not remotely a self-evident truth. 
a Roman would have laughed at it that everyone possessed inherent worth. The origins of this principle lay not in the French Revolution or the Declaration of Independence or Enlightenment, but in the Bible. Can I get a good amen? And just as Moses entered human history and said, you are made in the image of God, humanity reevaluated our self-worth when Jesus says, you are made in the image of God. And because of his words, he helped the most marginalized. He entered human history in a time when women were property, when they were discarded, demeaned, cast aside. You could divorce a wife for not looking at, not making you breakfast. And he entered Human history said you have value and worth even if your husband says no. And he's the only religious leader in human history that had female disciples. The only one. And which is why there is a complete and radical departure from what is the first century versus Christianity. The church then and the church today is disproportionately female. Celsius, the Greek philosopher, said this. Christians are, Christians want and are able to convince only the foolish dishonorable and stupid. Only slaves, women, and children. My question is, if Christianity is so oppressive, why would it only go after white male men? It didn't. It went after slaves, women, and children, the most humble, weak, and the lowest of society. It's never been oppressive. It's not about that. Which is why Jesus, when he goes to Lazarus' home, after he resurrects him, his two sisters, Martha and Mary, one is in the kitchen cooking and the other one is sitting at his feet, which is the sign of a disciple. And the sister in the kitchen says, I'm making some tacos. Tell her to come help me. And Jesus says, she has chosen the better thing. He does not rebuke her for wanting to learn. And in a culture where women had no voice in a court of law, Jesus says, you know who I want to tell the world that I defeated the grave? That the tomb is empty, there's news to tell. Anybody thinking about the resurrection? Yes. Mary Magdalene, the female prostitute. I want her to tell the world about me. Where does this value come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Can we just pause? If you are an atheist in this room, God says go have sex. Come on, believe him already. <laughs> Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea. Rule. Someone say rule. rule. He's talking to both of them, male and female. Rule over the fish of the seas, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Next verse, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper. Someone say helper. Suitable for him. Sometimes we use this word, oh my gosh, a woman's a helper. That's demeaning and, and degrading. It's not. God uses that word often to describe himself. God would never use a word that demean himself. So this must mean a value of worth is used upon the woman. Genesis 2, verse 23, she is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The first time Adam sees a woman, he sings. This is why worship leaders get all the chicks. <laughs> and we have two options. Our value comes from creation or comes from evolution. And let me explain the difference. On one side, women, the poor, the lame, the blind, 
all of them have value and worth, not in their function, but they are made in the image of God. And on evolution side, only the strong have value. You died because you're weak. Which means, Rebecca McLaughlin says this, many secular people see evolution as the origin story that replaces the Genesis account. If evolution is our origin story, we humans have no natural rights. We only have the trump of the strong over the weak. And anytime you see a decline in Christianity, you will see women oppressed in that culture. Which is why she says this, as men are always, always, as men are almost always physically stronger than women, we have no grounds for saying men, women are equal to men. The scriptures teach that we are equal in value but different. Which is why Elvin Schmidt says this, what would the status of women in the Western world be today if Jesus had never entered human history? One way is to ask, answer this question is to look at the status of women where Christianity is not prevalent. Here, women are still denied many rights that are available to men. And when they appear in public, they must be veiled. As a former Muslim, I have many family members who are not allowed to go to school, drive, or vote. And oftentimes, they can't even pick their spouse. They are treated like property. And often in those cultures, even when raped, they are blamed. Schmidt ends with this. If I can get the worship team to come up. The status of Roman women was always very low. Rome placed a wife under his absolute control of her husband, who had authority, ownership of her, and all her possessions. He could divorce her if she would just go out in public without a veil or with a Lakers jersey. It's getting very heavy. I just need to make you smile for a second. He had the power of life and death over his wife as he did his children. The more, what he's essentially saying is, the more Christian a culture becomes, the more cherished women become. And whenever Christianity dies in the culture, the people that suffer first are always women. Which is why the most radical verse towards husbands is Ephesians 5. It says, husbands, Love, someone say love. It doesn't say lead your wife. It doesn't say dominate her. The number one call that Christ is in your heart, that you're going to preach the gospel in your marriage, not with words, but with your life, is that you love her by dying for her because she's not a property to be owned. She's a princess of the Most High. And in a culture that had that treated women like property, God raised and said, stop treating my daughters so low. I want you to love them and die for them the way that I loved you and died for you. First Peter 3 says this, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs. Someone say heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder, which is the, probably the scariest verse in my opinion in the Testament. God stops listening to you when you start to mistreat his daughter. Galatians 3 is super prophetic. 
And he says, I want you to clothe yourself with Christ. And it comes from the gospel account in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned and they fell short of the glory of God, God comes. He doesn't condemn them. He kills an innocent animal, takes the skin, and clothes Adam and Eve. It's a foretelling. It's a picture of what the gospel is. That one who is sinless would die in our place, and he would clothe us with his righteousness. And all of us, every person, myself included, we all fall short of the glory of God. Christianity is not filled with good people. It's filled with forgiven people. And God invites all of us, male or female, free or slave, lame or able-bodied, everyone's included. But the only way to get this forgiveness, this free gift of salvation, is you must close yourself with his righteousness, with his sacrifice. This is why Christianity is so inclusive and at the same time so exclusive. If you can bow your heads and close your eyes, I would love to pray for you. There are some of you in this room, it's time to forgive. You've been hurt. You have been mistreated by someone who claimed the name of Jesus. And this has been holding you back from following Christ. And although they may never apologize to you, on their behalf, I want to say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that they used their power and their position to push you down, to marginalize you and take advantage of you. that the Holy Spirit would heal your heart. Also praying for those who never heard the gospel message before. That there's a God in heaven who loves us. Who doesn't love us if we're white or love us if we're rich or love us because we're strong. But he's attracted to those who are marginalized or hurting, and I believe this room is full of some of you who are hurting. You need purpose. You need hope. And there's a God in heaven who wants to give it to you. And he doesn't give you things. He gives you himself. He gives you the free gift of salvation. And to receive this blessing, this new life, you got to place your faith in him. What did Jesus do? He left heaven as God. And he was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man. He's not a prophet. He's not a teacher. He's not a religious person. He's God in the 